Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 399 premium for Thursday, May 24th, 2012. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, we provide some answers, we provide some tips, we even ask some questions of our own here in the um, lovingly handcrafted Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> Who handcrafted it? Uh, our forefathers did. Ah, uh-huh. no, oh, I like that. That's a good answer. Good nice. answer. And here. In, I suppose, equally lovingly handcrafted. Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Yes. And I imagine your forefathers uh, crafted that for just for you. Probably. Probably. Oh, maybe not me specifically, but. Our last show in the 300s here, John. If, uh, if base 10 means anything to you. And by mm-hmm. golly, it better. It's one of my favorite bases. <laughs> Well, that's good. I got to say, I, I, I do like 16, otherwise known as hexadecimal, and two, or binary. The, the, those I like, is, and maybe octal. Yeah. How come we don't have any bases based on, like, prime numbers? Well, we do. You, you can certainly count in any base that you want. Oh, uh, yeah. The, well, not... from a computing standpoint, they really don't make sense. It doesn't make sense. No, I, I know. I'm just... Just asking. We like powers of two, which is the three that I mentioned. Actually, of, wait know. a minute. Is three? No, three ninety nine. Of course, isn't a prime number. We occasionally we do do shows that are prime numbers, though. So that's always interesting. But this this oh, is no. This is well, not certainly not. I mean, you can no. tell right away it's not. <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, but there was be- one th- because it's three times one thirty three. Is one thirty three a prime? Hmm. Oh, one thirty three. Um, it could be. Yeah. 133 could be a prime number. Yeah, I think it is. But we're not the math geek gab. We're the Mac geek gab. We are the math geek gab. That's right. Yeah. Cause, uh, we should give a nod to our friend, uh, Dan, who Dan does Bach, do, the math jock. Though he does do the, yeah, he does a math cast. So yeah. you, if you're all about math, then check out Dan. Dan Bach, the math jock. That's right. <laughs> well, that's his thing. That's, he's got a shtick. It's good. I didn't, I didn't know that was his, uh, oh, really? his tagline. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's Hi, good. Dan. Yeah. All right. Uh, so from Dan to Aaron, we will uh, try and see if we can't uh, find our footing here on this lovely show 399. Hey, Dave, this is Aaron calling you. I had a stupid question for you, and... Uh, um, I just can't figure this one out. I have a new iPhone. I'm trying to figure out how to send on an email two photos. I can send one photo by going to the camera roll and uh, selecting that to be sent. But once I have that email set up, uh, I need to send another one uh, with it. How do I do that? I can't seem to go back to the camera roll to select another one. I can't seem to find a place to select a second photo from within the email that uh, I am sending. I did it once, but I don't know how I did it. If you could uh, 
send me a text or whatever you do. Uh, I would be appreciative of that. All right, Dave. Thanks. Bye. That, that's actually Aaron, the uh, the keyboard player in the band Fling that I play in. But when I got this voicemail from him, I thought, man, this sounds just like a Mac Geek Gab question. And it's a great question because it's not obvious. Uh, you know, Apple's user interface is, uh, I mean, that's that's their stock and trade is 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 their, their simple, easy to use user interface that presents you with options when you need them and hides them when you don't. It's a beautiful paradigm. And in certain cases, it just falls flat on its face. And this is one of them. So uh, the way that you do this is there's there's a couple of ways that you can do this. Number one, uh, but, but they're all sort of accessed the same way. So in uh, you're going to go into you can either be in the camera app or you can go straight. If you're not in the camera app, go to the photos app and then pick your uh, camera roll or photo stream or whatever album you want. And that's going to give you a thumbnail view. The thumbnail view is where this magic happens. If you are looking at an individual picture, you've got to go up one level to the thumbnail view. And while you're there at the thumbnail view, you will uh, in the upper right hand corner of your iPhone, you will see a little. Well, it's like a little box with an arrow coming out of it. Hit that box. I have no idea what that box is supposed to represent. Uh, but that is the key to unlocking this mystery. So you hit that box and now you get a screen. Uh, nothing, not much changes, but it says select photos. And from here you can uh, select one or more photos. And then you have an option. You have four options uh, that you can uh, take with them. Of course, one of them is to delete them. That's probably not what you want, but it is an option. And as is save, that lets you save it to uh, another photo uh, roll or, uh, or album rather. But, uh, but the two that we're going to talk about here today are share and copy. So in Aaron's case, if he already has an email in draft mode, in mail, kind of uh, half composed, and he wants to add another picture, copy is the right option. So you come in here, you select one or more photos, and then you hit copy. And that will copy it to the iPhone's clipboard at which point you can go back into your mail app, uh, find the place in the text that you want to put it, or at the end of your message, double tap, bring up the little, uh, I guess it would be a cut, copy, paste thing, hit paste, and boom, your picture will appear. If you have not already created the mail message, then uh, you can select multiple photos and simply hit share and choose email from the uh, resulting little uh, pop-up dialogue, and then that will pop those pictures into an email that then you, you can then go and, uh, and uh, you know, address and, and fire off at will. So that's, that's the magic answer, but, uh, but yeah, it's that little square with the arrow coming out of it in the upper right hand corner of the photo thumbnail view is the, is the magic there, Aaron. And I don't know why Apple doesn't make that more obvious, but now it's obvious to all of us because we know, and that's the point. Right, John? And there's one slightly different path. So the path I took, so as you pointed out, Dave, there are two ways to get here, I think. So one is through the photos, I'll call it app on the yep. iPhone. And the other, at least on mine, is that if you click on camera, and it happens, it brings up the camera, but then the lower left-hand corner, you will see a thumbnail of, I guess, the last image that you took. If you click on that, it'll then bring up the thumbnail in the full screen view. And then if you click on camera roll, that brings you up a level yeah. And then I think it's pretty much the same as what you described as you click on this square with the arrow coming out of it. And then on the top of the screen, it will say select photos. And then from that point on, it's the same as you said, you could either do a copy operation or a share operation. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. If you do it from the camera, it's the same icon, but it's at the bottom of the screen. It's the square with the arrow coming out of it. And you have one less option. You have share, copy, and delete. You do not have save if you come this way. Um, But really the reason that I don't tell people to do this from the camera is that there are also two ways to get to the camera. And if you go to the camera from uh, from the springboard, which is the screen with all the icons on it, once your phone is unlocked, you know, you dig and you find camera app and you launch it like you would launch any other app, then you can do this. However, if you go to the camera from the lock screen and that is, you know, without sliding to unlock, you just tap the little camera icon and, and flick it up. You cannot share pictures from here. So so that's why I, I, I kind of went the photos app route because it is mm-hmm. more consistent because you can find yourself in the camera app. I wish there was a way to uh, to tell it, it. Don't worry about that. You know, I let me share from the treat the camera app equally regardless of where I am, uh, because it gets kind of frustrating for me. So. Anyway. All right, John, take it away with Joe. Joe. As a question, and we have an answer. And I think uh, going to the, bo- the, the the first part of the email here, it's quite long. We had it back and forth. But anyways, hi, Dave. So we just said hi to you, Dave, but that's okay. That's okay. I have a customer using 10.6.6 on a two-year-old iMac. He has several pictures in iPhoto that have morphed to a square four identical images by four identical images rather than the one original. He is anxious to get the originals back if possible. Uh, when he left his home, he had other days, 10 sucks, 10, six, eight. No, I don't think that makes a difference. Hope you can offer some assistance with this issue. And we certainly can. And we're going to have a bonus here because this is not only a suggestion for how to repair what I think is damage to the iPhoto library, but we're going to give a general tip here on how you could also do this with aperture. Cause at least in this case, Apple offers the same mechanism to get to a facility that will help repair your library, whether it be iPhoto or aperture. And in either application, what you do is you hold down, well, I'm going to say option command. So hold down option and command on the keyboard and then click on the icon, whether it be iPhoto or Aperture. And rather than entering the application, what you will get, depending on the app, is a dialog that says, oh, well, here's, here's, a, here's some options for repairing your library. Now, in this case, I'm almost positive. So, so if you... If you do it in iPhoto, what you will get is one, two, three, six options here. Now I'm almost positive what this is is damaged thumbnails. Well, I you or, know, well, it could be. It you, could, you, yeah, certainly it could be. Although when he exported the photos to the desktop, they were still like this. Ah, okay. So, all right. So I would. Uh, so what I suggested. So when you bring up the uh, and what happens when you hold down these these two keys and then you launch iPhoto, you will get a dialogue saying rebuild photo library. Please choose how you would like to rebuild your photo library. And it gives you six options. I would not check them all at once and say rebuild. Um, that's just my gut feel on this. Now there are two. So what I suggested, so there's one says rebuild the photo, small thumbnails, and then rebuild all of the photos, thumbnails. This may take a while. So I suggested try one and then the other and see if that fixes it. But then there are four other options that do various repair operations on the iPhoto library. Cool. Yeah, it's good to remember that those are there. That's um, and, and, and they're there for aperture as well. So that that's yeah, good to remember. Hopefully it helps. John. Yeah, and, 
Yeah, and Aperture is similar, though it only offers three options. Repair permissions, repair database, and rebuild database. And I think, uh, again, you should probably only choose one of the. And I think, actually, in this case, it's a radio button, so you can only choose one. And I would probably do them in the order that they're presented. Same with the iPhoto one. But yep. I think that'd be... Yeah. Well, except that I told them not to because I thought it was thumbnails. But right. Cool. All right. Good little tip. It's it's a good one to remember. We've got some we've got some more like that in the show that are just handy little things to uh, to bear in mind. In fact, I think you've got one uh, with Tim next. Yes, I do. Oh, yes, Tim. Had a question for you about show package contents option in the contextual menu. Sometimes with a keynote file, I can get this option. And sometimes I can't. I've linked a small screencast, which was awesome. That helped us totally understand this and, and helped us believe that he wasn't insane and, and, and was seeing things. And, and absolutely, he demonstrated to us. And actually, when, when I saw the screencast at first, I was like, what? Now, of course, you can access this in a number of ways. I think the, the normal way to access this, you know, I, I typically say right click, but I think normally it's a, it's a control click on something. And you will get a contextual menu in the finder. And one of the options that you, you'll see for something that is called a package, because it doesn't have the word package in it. I think if you go in the terminal and you look at something, you may be able to tell it's a package, but from the finder, you can't. But doing this, you can. But he clicked on one keynote file, and sure enough, it said show package contents, and the other one, it didn't. What's going on? Why is this? Well, I found it. And I actually found a neat little site here, which, which he checked out, and it explained it a bit more and, and brought us to a dialogue within Keynote that will let you control this. And it was actually a nice little site that he said uh, has a lot of other good tips called KeynoteUser.com. And they had an article. What happened to the package format? And here's what happened. If you go into the latest Keynote and in the preferences general, there's a what I think is a new checkbox in the latest version. So I assume the, the old files, or the older files were made with an earlier version of Keynote. But in the general preferences, there's a checkbox, which I believe is normally unchecked, that says save new documents as packages. Now, and it sounds like they default to not making them packages. I don't know why, because packages are, I mean, everybody loves to get packages and open them up, right? So I don't know why they would disable. I don't know why they would choose to make it, what I gather is just one big blob of data versus a package, because the package uh, as we've discussed, lets you maybe dig in and retrieve some individual elements of what make up a presentation or a photo or, or whatever. So I, I don't know. It sounds like my, you have thought my this. guess. Yeah. My guess is that it was done to preserve, to, to make these files, um, to give them the greatest chance of being transportable, you know, copying to thumb drives or, or various file sharing services. If you wanted to send a keynote file, this, this uh, and this, this is probably the the main reason. Let's say you were using a service like you send it, right? You send it is a, uh, a, a website you can go to. And if your file is a hundred megabytes or less, uh, you just go to this website and you type in the email address of the recipient, you select the file and it will just send it to them, but it stores it on their server and sends the personal link. It's to keep you from having to send these Mondo files via email, right? Really simple. But as, as John pointed out, packages are not files, they're folders. And if you go to the terminal, that's what you'll see. You'll see a folder and you send it, cannot send a folder like that. So you'd have to maybe zip it first and go through a process of compressing it. And if you didn't know what that meant or how to do that, you'd be stuck. So 
my guess is that that's where this comes from is, is keynote files are the types of things that people are constantly shuffling around. You know, either they develop a presentation with someone else and they need to, to shift it around or, uh, you know, you, you develop this presentation and then, you know, you're going to present it somewhere and they say, please send us a copy of your slides and same kind of thing. So that's, I'm sure that's why they've, they've abandoned. It used to always be packages for keynote, but in iWork 09, um, that went, that is obviously no longer the default, but you can change it, but I, but I'm sure that's why. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Occam's razor, you know, I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. You can PayPal me the dollar. You don't get my reference, do you? I, I do. Yeah. I oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I think it was RoboCop, right? Uh, yeah. Among other things, but that's the line I remember that from. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to be like, I'd buy that for a dollar. All yeah, right. Moving that on. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you want to take Ronald or you want me to take again? Ronald? Again? You're on a roll, oh, gosh, man. Gosh, man. I'm, I'm rolling. I'm rocking and rolling. Okay. That's great. All right. I think I got this one, though, though it could be open to discussion. So uh, Ronald opens with J and D or JD. I don't think he was drinking any JD when he wrote this in, but despite listening attentively to Matt Gigab, I understand more about quantum mechanics than I do OS 10 privileges, which is cool. I have a drive attached to my airport extreme that I use to share data between computers. And I think that's, that's called air disc, right? The problem is on the network, I don't have permissions to read and write. I don't seem to be able to delete files. When I get info on the drive, I get this. And he sent a screenshot of the uh, air disc. And I guess you can tell it's an air disc because it's a blue icon with a little radio wave on it. Um, and it's connected by AFP. And then he shows the permissions on it. And, and sure enough, it seems to say that everyone has no access and unknown has read and write. And I, I can't say I've ever seen that before. I can't change anything even with the drive unlocked. When I try to add a new owner from either of my computers, I get the name enter is not valid. Try again. If I try to change permissions at the bottom, nothing happens. When I connected via USB, then he, and he shows us the screenshot, which has a different icon, which is a orange drive with a little USB icon on it. What does he say here? And then he shows us system preferences. Um, so I think what he's saying is he can probably access it when he hooks it up via USB, but he can't when it's via air disc. And I think That's I know right. why Dave. Yeah. So he didn't explicitly say it, but I'm going to assume that is that it's cool with USB, but not via air disc. And I think this is why. And actually, let me. Uh, I didn't have it up here, but I don't want to bring up airport utility because I think that is where the problem is or the solution or both or the precipitate. <laughs> so when you go into airport utility and you have an airport that has a USB port, which uh can let you either plug in a drive or a USB printer. But if you plug in a drive and then in the airport utility, you go to the disks section, you will then see both the disk. And if it's time capsule, you see the, the disk inside of the unit. And then if you have any other drive, you'll see this in a, in a list of drives. And there are two settings, disks, which gives some general info, and then file sharing. And I think this is where the problem is. So when you click on the file sharing tab, you're going to see one Checkbox saying enable file sharing. I'm going to assume that's being checked because he sees the drive. But then I think this is the problem. There's a secure shared disks um, pull down, I'm going to call. And it has three entries in it. And I think I know what the problem is. Now, the way I have mine set up is I have 
the item called with time capsule password checked. Now, there are two other options. There is with a disk password, but then there's a third one, and I'm almost positive this is the one that he has checked, and it says with accounts. And the reason I think that is because if you choose that, you actually get a warning from the airport utility saying setting up user accounts may make any files already on airport disks inaccessible to non-administrator users. Are you, want to, are you sure you want to change this setting? Sounds pretty ominous to me. Yeah. So my suggestion was, uh, first, my assumption is that he has with accounts for whatever reason that was selected. I would not select that because I, uh, I don't think you need that level of control. You may, but, uh, but I think to, to accomplish his task, he doesn't. And I would choose one of the other two options. And again, I have with time capsule password, and I think I've entered it once and it's in my keychain, So I don't even get a prompt when I try to mount one of these. And, and I'm sorry, actually, there's a checkbox also in the airport utility saying, remember this password in my keychain. So that's how I'm set up. And that was my suggestion. And I'm, I'm sticking to it. And I don't know if. Um, no, I think that's right. Of, of course, the other option is that there is also a airport disks guest access option. Now, I don't have that enabled, but that could be another thing that he may want to explore is that I have it not allowed, but there are read-only and read-and-write settings. And perhaps and that is... Actually, if you have... Yeah, if you had guest access enabled as read-only and you connected without choosing to enter a password, you would be able to read the disk, but not write. Right. So, so the, that could very so well to summarize, be... summarize... Yeah, so the solution to this problem is not to try to, ch to modify the permissions from the finder, but to modify these settings within the airport utility. That's right. And there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I like it. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've had an airport, well, I've had a time capsule for a long time. And, uh, and various, uh, at, at various times, um, you've heard me rant about my Drobo FS, that, that it's slow to navigate and, and this, that, and the other thing. And I've done a lot of testing at, uh, with it, with Drobo lately. And, and I'd sort of lost my, uh, my, the, I'd lo my love affair with Drobo had, had sort of waned because this Drobo FS, it's great because it sits on the network as its own device, but, um, but it, it's, it's really slow, not transfer speed wise, but, um, but just navigating uh, through the finder. It's, it's whatever they'd have done with file sharing there is messed up. And, uh, but you know, I had this other, uh, second generation Drobo, the one that you can connect either FireWire 800, FireWire 400 or USB. And I hung that as an air disc, just like you're talking about off my time capsule and boy, howdy, you know, I put the same folders on that, that I had on the, on the FS just to test and man, it navigates so super, super quick. And it's because the time capsules managing the, the file structure and the sharing and, uh, and it's not whatever Drobo software is. So, so I've been living with this now for a long time. Well, for maybe a month with the, uh, the, the second gen Drobo hanging off of the time capsule and it works awesome, but I, I shared it exactly the way you're, you're suggesting with one single password. Now I'm okay with everyone in the house having access to the, uh, the data on there. If I wasn't, then I'd have to do accounts and probably have to muck about with permissions in order to get that right. So, but that's how it works. All right, John, uh, it is time to head into uh, what I would like to call five questions from three different Scots. 
And uh, and so with this, I would like to uh, I'd like to start with well, let's start with Scott. <laughs> Hi guys, it's Scott from Michigan. I really want to thank you guys for the great service you provide here. I'm having an issue with my iMac lately. A couple of months ago, I upgraded the RAM to eight gigs. Now, when I look at the activity monitor, it seems like I'm usually maxed out on my RAM usage, and it really doesn't seem like I have a lot of programs open. Maybe a couple Safari windows with two or three tabs, and a few other programs. Definitely not more than when I had four gigs of RAM. A couple of times the computer's been so slow that it's locked up, and I've just had to force quit everything and restart. I'm wondering if I have a RAM problem or if the OS just isn't managing its RAM correctly. My page ins and outs are high, but not nearly as high as they were when I had 4 gigs of RAM. Any help or tips you can give me on how to better manage my memory would be beneficial. I've enclosed a screenshot. Thanks again for all your help. I'm out. All right. John, you want to uh, you want to start with this one again? Uh, You're on a roll. Might as well. Go. I'm on a roll, so I'm going to keep rolling. All right. First off, what I would suggest, and I think you, you clued me in on this, Dave, here, is when you want to look at your RAM usage, um, and this is something I don't think Apple enables by default, probably the best place to look or one place to look is Activity Monitor. And now you're going to see a couple of columns um, towards the right side of the screen here, and I don't believe the one that I believe is the most accurate representation of RAM is normally enabled, and that is a real mem. Is that is that correct, Dave? Yeah, but I think it is enabled by default now. Oh, okay. It, it didn't used to be. You're definitely right about that. I don't know if it is now because I have it enabled on all my Macs, and I couldn't begin to tell you if it, you, you know what I mean. It's and, yeah. So. And I think that's showing the physical memory because there's a virtual memory column, and I think that that that's crazy. That that's right. That value is is not is terribly it? useful in my opinion. And then Correct. shared memory. So Sh- real memory. Shared memory can be valuable for different reasons, but, but okay. th- yeah. But anyway, real memory is the one that, that you really that that's the one to focus on because as you said, that's physical memory. And yes. and he showed and, and, and fortunately he sent us the screenshots, which yep. was awesome because this helped us nail the problem. And I don't think it's a memory problem so much as an application that sucks problem, to be quite frank here. <laughs> Yeah, keep going. <laughs> so we saw the list here and the winner. So, of course, what you do is if you click on one of the columns, it will then sort the values. And and he actually clued us in on two. We'll visit him a bit later here. But the first one that he sent us here, the winner, Dave, was Safari web content. Not Safari, but Safari web content. And I believe in the screenshot he showed us, it was consuming over two gigabytes of memory out of eight gigabytes on his system. Dude, that's insane. What is going on here? Now, I think you and I both could both, both agreed that flash is probably the culprit here or some plugin, because I believe whatever is in Safari web content is content that is loaded via plugins or. No, not necessarily. Oh, okay. It, it, it well, is. Oh, go ahead. But I know, it, but it's separate from the Safari process itself, but it was the big winner as far as consuming Ram. But I, I'd actually like to learn your, your, uh, yeah. knowledge on, on what does web what does safari web content entail so safari uh had this big security hole that apple patched i believe with lion uh or the current version of safari which was introduced with lion and and now each browser window runs as a separate uh, in its own separate memory space uh each tab does i believe so that uh 
data from one tab cannot be accessed from another another tab because it was possible that some nefarious soul could try and go and, you know, grab if you had one, if you had their Web page up and gave them the right access, they could go and grab this other stuff. So uh, that Safari Web content process, in my understanding, is this other thing that then shields um, all these different pages uh, from each other. And I've seen Flash definitely cause memory bloat there. But I've also seen things like uh, Google's real-time analytics, which are not flash. If you leave them running long, long enough, it just totally fills up your, your browser's memory. Um, so there, there's, there's lots of different things. Anything that's streaming data to you can, can cause this. So, uh, but, but flash is far and away the most likely culprit. Uh, no question about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're fun to beat up on. So. And they're fun to beat up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's good times. Good times. So, uh, so my suggestion, which I think is a good general suggestion for, uh, but, but you know, Dave, I've also noticed that Safari in general, I don't know if they fix this, but it, it almost seems to me that Safari in general, and maybe this helps break it out, but in my experience has what I'd, I'd consider a memory leak. And then it, it just seems that the Ram consumption on Safari never decreases it keeps increasing over time and eventually you just got to quit it because it's just going to keep growing and growing and maybe because now they break it out in safari web content it's clearer as to maybe who is doing this but that's been my experience is safari continues to consume resources until they're all consumed until they're all consumed i don't know about you no that no that's absolutely true yeah it's good practice to quit safari and uh and come back into it, uh, you know, certainly once a day, if not a couple of times a day, if you're if you're using it a lot. Uh, right. one, one thing. So I that wanted- was the culprit. So so he's not doing anything wrong. I mean, eight gigs of RAM to me is is a nice, comfortable amount here. Yeah, it's a runaway process. And, and activity monitor is certainly where you want to look to try to figure out uh, under the real memory column who is who's responsible for this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I did want to touch on one thing uh, when you were reading his question or uh, when he was reading his question. Uh, he mentioned that his page ins and page outs were high. Uh, that is one thing to look at. And what where he's seeing this is, again, an activity monitor at the bottom. You've got five different tabs. And the second one in from the left is system memory. And you'll see page ins and outs. And we've talked about this before, so I'm going to make this brief. But uh, those are. Semi-important to watch. The one that's really important to watch is the one at the bottom of that column, which is swap used. And on on the screenshot he sent us, he only had about 62 megabytes of swap used. That's nothing to worry about. If that number is, you know, getting close to or over a gigabyte, you know, or maybe even 500 megabytes, depending on, you know, how clean you want to run, then you got to worry about it. But but anything certainly under the 100 megabyte number, uh, don't worry about your page ins and page outs. Uh, those are going to happen for various reasons. So um, leave, leave, just just watch the swap used, and and that's enough. So I violently disagree with you. No, I, I, I gently I gently disagree with you, and then you, I would say you're wrong second, about this. But go ahead, it's okay. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. How do you know? You don't even know what. It, well, you mean, no, I, I would say the second most important is page outs. Yeah, but it's a distant second, man. It, because things are going to uh, cause. Uh, uh, let me qualify outs. it. Things are going to cause page outs, even though they don't. Yes. Okay. To me, because what a page out is, a page out means that, oh, I better put something that's in RAM onto the hard drive. What I'm going to suggest is that if you see it actively increasing, then whatever you're doing at that point in time, 
is causing the system to create swap, right? Yeah, it can. Or the page out. A page out. To, uh, page ins. I think is not important. I think oh, we yeah. can agree on that. And the page ins are going to happen no matter what. But page outs only happen when you're starting to to stress the system or start to reach a boundary where the system feels it's necessary to write stuff to the hard drive. Yeah. Okay. But no, I'm with you. It's a second. It's a second and maybe a distant second. Now I'm with you. Swap use. This is certainly the most critical and that. Yeah. If that gets into the, like right now I'm looking at my mini right now, it's five megabytes, which I think that that's good. <laughs> well, because I got eight gigs of Ram on this machine. So that's cool. But if you see swap used getting into the, the, you know, tens or, or you know, hundreds, we actually had someone <laughs> actually having it get into the hundreds of gigabytes. Then you got a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Page, page outs though are, are, Certainly, if something's moving into swap, it will show up there. But I believe page outs also happen if something's moving into inactive RAM. Um, so you, you got to be careful obsessing over that number. That's that's yeah, I wouldn't obsess. I, I look at it. But if, if you see it increasing while you're watching it, then whatever you're doing at that moment in time is causing the system to write stuff to hard drive. That That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. All right. Uh, so now that we've finished with Scott, let's move on to Scott. And <laughs> Scott writes, uh, I want your thoughts on the best way to manage email. I'm using iCloud. My Macs are all online. My iOS devices are all on iOS 5. So Scott heard our discussion in, in 398 and wanted a little clarification on this and, and shares his uh, his situation with us here. Is, let's start with some history way back. I managed all my email manually as it came in. This worked, but could be time consuming. So I started putting rules on my Mac to sort the email as it arrived back when I had one Mac. This worked great. However, when I started checking email from my iPod touch and etc., cetera, uh, the emails that my main Mac would sort into local folders would no longer be available on the cloud. So about two years ago, I started putting rules into place on the mail server instead of using my local mail application. Very smart. Good idea. Uh, now, there are differences. First, the rules available on my Mac in Apple Mail are much more robust than but the mail must be delivered unread to the Mac in order to have that rule run. That's correct. Uh, on iCloud, the rules are more simple, but they uh, impact the mail as it arrives on Apple servers. My problem is that Apple has a limit of 99 rules on their servers. I know this because I tried to add a new rule this morning and was greeted with a message that said to paraphrase, to paraphrase, you silly boy, you can only have 99 rules. So now I need to decide what to do. Uh, I thought of three scenarios. Number one, create three aliases on iCloud for different things. Uh, and I'll go to various websites and change my email addresses so that the appropriate company contact uses the correct address. Then I can build server side rules that apply to the email sent to that address. This would be time intensive, but would be somewhat elegant in the end. Number two, I could create most of the rules on my main Mac, but then have to go to sorting uh, the iCloud folders instead of on my, my on my Mac folders. This would be fairly easy, but if for some reason my Mac is not up and running or doesn't have Internet access, then none of my rules will run and all my mail will go to my inbox. This situation will occur because I currently live in Colombia and my Internet connection drops and we have frequent power outages. This is normally not a problem when we're at home. Number three. Uh, I could give up on email and just create a rule that sends all email to the trash. This would make management very easy. Yeah. Okay. So I really like option number three. That would be great. Can we implement? Oh, wait, wait, wait. That's bad. No, we can't do that. Um, 99 rules is a lot of rules. Uh, I have 20 rules on my Mac and four 
on the server. I use Gmail uh, as my server uh, for email uh, for this type of stuff, but um, but it's similar to iCloud in terms of having rules on the on the thing. The, the first thing I would do is is uh, is take a look at the rules and see if you can consolidate them down. I realize the rules on iCloud are limited, but um, but you know try and figure out is there a way to be more efficient with them? Right. This is my you know, Dave, who was trained as a programmer in the 1980s talking here because, you know, every line of code cost a lot of time. So it's like, it's okay to go back, build this, this huge set of instructions, and then go back and see if you can consolidate them down, make them more efficient. Right. So, uh, and the, the next thing, or maybe even I do this first is I would look at my mail filtering in general and decide how much of it actually needs to be filtered. You know, as we talked about in 398, uh, as far as archiving your mail these days, I've found that it works really well to put everything in just one archive folder and search for it. Now that doesn't mean that there's no reason to have other mailboxes. There are, and I use them for example, for Mac Geekab, right? I want incoming mail to go to the right mailbox, whether it's for the premium show or the regular show. So I have filters set up that do that on the server and they, and they manage that for me. Um, so, you know, there, there are reasons, but to have 99 of those, makes me think that perhaps there's there there's a there's an inefficiency at work here um you know how valuable are each of those filters are you looking at 99 different mailboxes you know what exactly are they doing and can they be made more efficient and if you can't get below 99 then hop over to gmail and, and route your mail that way and uh and i think you can have a more than 99 rules and b you can be a lot more uh, flexible with them than Apple lets you be on the, uh, on the iCloud filters, side. right? Fil- yeah. Filters rules. Right. Yes, exactly. They're, yes. Yes. Cause you yeah. taught me that. And actually, you know, that was a big revelation for me when I moved over to IMAP is to bring over a lot of the filtering or rules to Gmail first. Yeah. And, and I still, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed because I, I still do both. And I don't know if it's the best implementation. I do both and as that well. I sti- but and that I still, I, I, so I do some very basic ones, like things that are sent to my old Pop ISP. That's an easy rule. That that one's simple. Yep. Or things that fall into certain broad categories, I'll have them automatically put into a certain IMAP mailbox. But I still have rules in Mail App, and it makes it a bit quirky because sometimes if I access my mail from my iPhone, which of course doesn't run the rules or, or the the Mail App rules. Things right. look a little different. Eventually, it all works out once once I filter the mail on. on okay, so you do the same thing. Okay, I don't feel so bad in that I don't have all my rules in, in one place and that I have them in, at least at this point, two places. I, I don't really do them with, with uh, iCloud. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, I've got I've actually got less rules on the server. I think I said I have four, but I've actually got a couple different places where it comes in. I probably have more like six or eight on the server. And then and then I I have 20 or so on my Mac, but my guess is that most of a good, like at least half of those aren't actually being used anymore. I don't think I ever got rid of the rules that, that I moved to the cloud. You know, they're just happening in a different spot now. So, so I can make mine more efficient too. And a little tangent go. I think it's relevant though, but I've actually started using on, on a trial basis here, smart mailboxes. Oh yeah. Very handy. Well, I'll tell you why, because as far as I can tell Dave mail app, can only run rules on things that come into your inbox. Right. And, and, and as Scott pointed out, only it will only run automatically. It will only run rules on items that come into your inbox and are unread. If they have been read, 
on another device or whatever, if they show up as as not unread, then the rules are not applied. So here's the challenge that I'm running into. So first I looked and I don't know if anybody makes something for mail app that will filter things that are put into mailboxes other than the inbox. So for example, what I have happen, and this is on the Gmail side, is anything that's sent to my Mac Observer address, I automatically have it put it into a mailbox called the Mac Observer. The problem is mail app never sees this. Right. Okay. Right. And here's the thing. So for example, I have a couple of what I typically do. So I have a couple of trade shows coming up and typically they have materials come from either a certain mail address or have a certain subject line or, or maybe a combination. And so I've done a couple of smart mailboxes and, and I kind of like them and, and my style here right now. So for example, blog world is coming up and I think I'm probably going to pop in and see that in New York city. Yeah. And so what I do is I look for either uh, an email address that comes from their acknowledged you know, whatever at blogworld.com um, after a certain date. And so it'll scour through my mail app. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm totally happy with it, but that's the world I set up. So it's after a certain date and it's from this address. And maybe if it has this world blog world in it, then I'm going to do a smart mailbox and then I can look at them and then maybe I can copy them to another mailbox after that. But at least, uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings yeah. about smart mailboxes. I can see, uh, I don't know if I'm happy with the flexibility and that it seems to be any or all. And I don't know if I like that level of granularity. I wish they had a finer level of granularity for a smart mailbox because then it would meet my needs perfectly. Well, uh, let me look. Cause if you do mailboxes, um, but I think see. you'll see it's, it's either any or all rules. You, you can't do, as far as I can see, you can't do a more complex combination of conditions Oh yeah, it's it has not to be like, either any of the conditions or all of the conditions for a smart mailbox. At least, the, the, from what I could tell. Yeah, because in if you're doing a smart playlist in iTunes, you can hold down the option key when you hit the plus button, and then you can have groups of things where you say, "Look, I want all of these conditions, but any one of these can count as one." You can actually get pretty complex with it. It's pretty cool, but uh, but you're right. I don't. Uh, I, I'm trying all the magic little, you know, click boxes and I just have a screen full of, uh, of things that are all on the same level. So, right. Again, as far as I can see, it says contain yeah. contains messages that match all or any conditions. So you I can, want, I've done this where I, I had a problem like this that I wanted to solve. And so I created two smart mailboxes, right? One that, that had the, the first set of criteria. And then the other was if it's contained in this mailbox, you know, I had the the, uh, the first one was the any, right? So any one of the following is true, put it in this smart mailbox. And then I had a second smart mailbox that said, if all of the following are true, and I pointed, you know, I, the, my first rule was, if it's in this other smart mailbox, then I know that one of one of many is true. And, oh. Right? Right? Oh, well, that, oh, come on. No, come on. That's awesome right there. That's like, you're telling me they couldn't have put, that in a single smart mailbox. Uh, no, okay. no I, I see where you're going with yeah. this. No, I understand. I understand what you're saying. So yeah. include one smart mailbox in another. Yes. Yes. And yeah. make one, the any and one, the all, and then you can sub and you're good to go. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Well, thanks man. Sure. No, that's a, to me, it's kind of a hack, but Oh, it's a total it's hack. A, pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward hack because right. uh, what I wanted was, you know, basically this condition and this condition or 
this condition or you know what I'm yeah, saying? I do to make it a bit more complex yep. in, in that. I don't think any or all is, is enough granularity for what I think a lot of people are looking for in a smart mailbox. To me, it's not very smart. It, it's kind of, it, it, it's not dumb, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So that's that. All right. Now, uh, we've finished with Scott and Scott. And so now it's time. We got to go to Scott. It's time to move on to Scott. And he writes, uh, I've been going through podcasts from a few months ago, trying to figure out the best way to upgrade to lion without getting all the cruft from many years of upgrades. I know from previous podcasts, you mentioned that you wouldn't upgrade to lion, but rather would do a fresh install. And I think that's a good idea. However, I'm not sure if I need to use migration assistant or if that will migrate the cruft. Okay. So, uh, in a nutshell, here's here's kind of distilling everything down that we've talked about uh, basically since Lion came out. Uh, you do not want to do an upgrade from Snow Leopard to Lion. That's what inherits all the problems, especially if you're on a Core 2 Duo processor. There is there is something not good about that scenario. So uh, you're going to need to make a thumb drive copy of the lion installer. And, and there are various uh, instruction methods out there to do that. You're going to use the install ESD DMG file from within the lion installer. And you're going to make a, a thumb drive or, or some sort of boot device from that. That's number one. Uh, number two, you're going to clone your main hard disk. And, and this is important because you're going to erase it in a future step, right? So, so you, you, uh, you have this and you have a clone. So at that point, you boot from the USB drive, wipe out your main hard drive. Uh, you you know, do an, uh, go to disk utility, reformat the drive and erase it. Then install Lion onto it fresh. Uh, once that's done, it will come up and ask with migration assistant, do you have any data you want to pull from anywhere? And the answer is yes. You want to pull it from your clone. And from this, you can pull over applications, user documents and anything else you want. And that seems to have served uh, all of us really well. The, the the thing you want to avoid is just that on top upgrade, which of course with Lion is really the easiest way to do it, unfortunately. But uh, but especially on Core Two Duo Max, it is not a good scene. So so that's it. And then that 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 that's the answer. So hopefully that helps. Do you have anything to add to that before we move on to uh, to Scott? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, then let's move on. I'm going to take a breather, man. But I think, uh, yeah, no, I think we got to go to Scott here. And I think, uh, oh, this is a good. Yeah. I think this leads to a geek challenge. So let me, this is kind of a challenge because I'm looking into, ah, here we go. Nope. That's not the right one. I know. It's See, hard, the problem it's is hard they're sorting all, all these Scots out. <laughs> no, we got to make sure we get it right. That's right. Wait, this is, this hey, I'll, I'll read it. I got it. No, no, I got it. I got it. No, well, yeah, I I'll got read it. it and you can answer. Unless, unless you're ready to go. I am ready to go. Then go. Okay. From Scott. <laughs> I've got an external NAS, which is network attached storage or network drive, connected via Ethernet using AFP, which of course is the Apple Apple file protocol, which That's is right. uh, how you or which is how you share. Apple's protocol for sharing things over a network. The problem is I want to be able to use Spotlight to find files on my NAS. If I use the Spotlight search in the top right corner of the desktop window, i.e. the little magnifying glass, and type a few keywords to search for, it never returns me any suggestions for my NAS. 
If I open a finder window and use the spotlight search within the finder window, that will never find anything either unless I navigate to the folder in question where the file I'm searching for is and explicitly tell it to search for that particular folder. Then when I type my search string, it usually finds the file I'm after. As you can see, that's not very helpful. I want Spotlight to search and index my entire NAS and offer me suggestions without having to do all the navigation. How do I do this? Are there any third-party apps to do if Spotlight won't play ball? I'm running OS 10, 10.7.4, and, uh, and its NAS is not included in the privacy settings, which, of course, in Spotlight, if you have a drive in the privacy settings, it will not catalog it. So... My response, which was entirely correct, but not very useful, is as, follow, is as follows. So I did some searching here, and I tried this myself. So if you go to the terminal, there are a few things that you can do uh, to manipulate or get Spotlight to do things. And in the terminal, Spotlight is not called Spotlight. Spotlight is MDUtil. So if you go to the terminal, well, you can type in MDUtil, and it will tell you all of the parameters here. So... There are a few useful ones here you may want to use in general, and I tried these. So one is mdutil, and then you type in the path to a volume, which typically is slash capital V, uh, slash volumes with a capital V, and then slash the name of the network volume, space dash S. That will tell we'll, you the- we'll, we'll link to an article that, that shows that type of stuff, because it, it that stuff is, well, frankly, it stinks to have to- grok that all right. in an audio so in an basically there's yeah all right so there's three things you can do so there's one command where you can look at the indexing status of uh, the spotlight indexing status of a drive whether it be network or local because they're all contained in volumes that's a little tip here in and of itself is that if you do see if you go to the terminal and you do cd space slash volumes and then you do an ls you will see all the volumes whether they be local or network that your system can see at that point in time now, supposedly, if you run mdutil with the name of the volume and then do a dash i and say on, that will that should enable indexing on a volume if it has been disabled. So I'm like, well, why don't you try that? And then the final one, which again is just a general tip here, if you want to recreate the spotlight index on any volume, you say mdutil space, the name of the volume space, dash capital E, and that will recreate it. So I suggested all this and then said, you know, this should work. And I tried it on my system with my Drobo, Dave. And you know what? It didn't do diddly. <laughs> and then I looked around and the thing is, some people suggested, well, you know, it may not work in Lion. It may not work on an AFP volume. It may not work on an SMB volume. So I don't know what's going on. So I, I think we have to drum this up to uh, this has to be a geek challenge because the thing is, none of the commands I, I issued, Dave, said anything was wrong they were all like oh you want to do this sure it's just it didn't work <laughs> yeah so uh first i so, found an article so i found an article uh, titled using terminal to control spotlight which details all the commands that 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 john just uh, tried to walk us through here it's much simpler just to read them folks so so just go do that um, yeah i think i found the same one and i linked to it it's like here turn it on turn it off here's the status yeah. but yeah it's easy it's easy to up? do but uh so the thing is it, Spotlight used to be more aggressive about going out and indexing network volumes in previous versions of the OS. But in Lion, they tighten that up quite a bit. And and for good reason, because it can be a very uh, costly process in terms of disk usage on your NAS and, and network usage and all of that. So it's basically unsupported unless the NAS vendor goes out of their way 
to make it supported there. And, and so in a, in a general sense, sp- assume that spotlight is not going to work on any network attached storage devices. So really where the geek challenge comes in is if anyone has any great uh, apps that they use to index uh, drives and, and keep them going, that, that would be, um, that's really what we're looking for here is, um, is, is, is that, yeah. Finding, finding how to, you know, find, finding the good things to catalog those, uh, those, those discs. Um, you know, we do, we did have it now that I'm thinking about this and this is why you might've heard me stutter here. Uh, yesterday I was perusing the Mac geek gab forums and I may have stumbled onto the answer here. Uh, cat in the forums asked, I have a bunch of external hard drives with contents from different projects, but some overlap. I don't want to have to plug them in to figure out where to find something. And it seems too tedious to write down everything that exists on each drive. Uh, is there some software, uh, that could keep the directory of the files uh, to reference even when the drive is unplugged. So a different use case, but basically you want the same software, something that's going to go ahead and index these drives. And, uh, and Coronas in the forums replied with two things, CD finder, which is at cdfinder.de, and disk tracker at disktracker.com. So th- those are two pieces of software that you can check out to, uh, to index your, your NAS drives as well as all your, your, your other drives. So that's, um, that's my that's my answer for that one, John. Yep, it's good stuff. And I'll, and we'll, of course we'll link to that thread in the uh, in the show notes. But and just why? I mean, I can understand when you run this command, so especially the status command by default, I can understand because it, it, it generates network traffic and stuff. But come on, I'm telling it to do this. Why doesn't it listen to me? Uh, yeah, well, I just don't get it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see fundamentally any difference between indexing. Although again, it may, may take oh, you know, no. a lot longer. Think about my, my prior example with the Drobo, right? It doing it's a drive Dave. Dave yeah, drive. Well, well, but, well, speed. If you don't consider access speed. Now, again, I agree with you on that is that, yeah, I mean, accessing a network drive can be very slow. So, so maybe, maybe by default you turn off indexing of network drives, but to not allow it at all. Uh, I agree. Spotlight's cool. Yeah. No, that's true. It does a great job. There's, there's two cases where it would be a really bad idea, right? The network drive hanging off my airport extreme really, or my time capsule, which is the same thing, uh, really fast access. I can get the directory easily. Uh, I can access the files very easily. No problem. If I ran spotlight the same data store on that Drobo FS, it would probably take uh, many, many hours longer to, to do that index. And of course, spotlight is constantly re-indexing anytime a file has changed and you can't track whether a file has changed on a network drive. Right. So that's that's one reason that they probably did away with this, because it wasn't it wasn't able to keep itself 100 percent up to date, 100 percent of the time and be reliable. I'm. So, I'm with you on that, but I'm going to offer something that I saw and it said it wasn't supported is that one of the options in MDUtil, which when I tried to force it, said it wasn't supported, yeah. is you can push the index from the local drive to the network drive, which would solve your issue. Well, the but index still, is stored not on your local drive, but it's stored on. So, so the only time you can utilize it, utilize it is when the network drive is mounted because the index is stored there. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I do. Different problem, though. My problem is, okay. is you know, anytime files are updated on that, now we need to go and re-index them. Right. right? Sure. That's right. done 
with um, uh, uh, FS events, right? That Spotlight knows to go and re-index files that are on your Mac's hard drive because the operating system via FS events tells Spotlight, hey, this mm-hmm. file was just updated. Go ahead and update your index. But with network drives, you don't get FS events. That's just not part of the, the file structure because it's not they're not HFS plus drives. They're they're NAS drives, right? They're seen as these AFP or SMB or, you know, some other protocol. Mm-hmm. So that that immediately nullifies any use that Spotlight would have or at least any ability it would have to keep itself up to date. And then and then throw into that mix the the idea that your network connection speed, you know, we're, we're making the assumption here that network connection speed is fast. Well, what if you're connected over uh, some Wi-Fi network that's slow or spotty or even worse, if you're connected to a share over the Internet, you certainly don't want it indexing that. So I get why I get why Apple turned this off. It, it could it could be a total nightmare if they hadn't. So. Yeah. All right. All right. Last uh, last one from uh, who, who do we have here? Last question. Oh, look, Scott. Well, another another from Scott. Yeah, go. And this is another one. And Dave, I got to thank you because you actually, uh, I looked in my email and found that you had actually answered this in, in some uh, fashion a little while ago. All right, go. So then Scott, who had memory problems, had another problem. And he sent us another screenshot. Now, if you thought Safari was bad, well, here's, here's a fish shake. So this is related to my previous question about RAM management. I'm enclosing another screenshot of my activity monitor. I'm getting an HP device monitor that is eating up a ton of RAM. I don't think I have printed anything for a while. I've whacked it before, but it comes back. Okay. You thought Safari was bad at one gig? Look at this thing. HP device monitor. Real memory consumed 3.4 gigabytes. Wow. What? So I responded to him saying, all right. I don't know about this, and, and uh, I'm going to stick by this. HP crapware, okay? I'm sorry, anybody at HP, but what is HP device monitor doing that requires three gigabytes of memory? It's leaking memory. Uh, yeah, but uh, can't <laughs> you kind of figure this out and, like, kill yourself off, you know, gracefully or something? But no, it's just terrible. So, yeah, maybe it's sitting there just eternally trying to print a document that it never is able to print. But, yeah, I mean, guys, so... Now, again, I dug into our archives, Dave, and you had actually helped someone figure this out here. But I, I found a better way to do this. And one way is to find the app and, and delete it. But as he, he pointed out, it comes back. Well, here's what you got to do. So if, if I give HP any credit, is that they include an uninstaller. So basically, you got to delete this thing. Now, my experience, uh, I run an HP printer. I have a very, which I'm very happy with, an HP um, B8550 um, inkjet printer. Wonderful. Does 13 by 19. I'm, I'm totally happy with it. I haven't installed any of the HP software because I don't feel it necessary because you know what? Apple provides everything that I need. Not only the drivers, but the utility software to talk to the printer. So, how can you delete the HP crapware, as I'm going to call it? Well, as far as I can tell, they at least offered us this one service. If you go to applications, you will then see a Hewlett Packard folder. And then within that, you will see something called HP Uninstaller. I would strongly encourage you to run this HP Uninstaller. Because I did this when I got the printer at first. I'm like, oh, HP has the drivers. And then they're like, oh, we want to install the monitor and the photo blah, blah app. And the, 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 and they, 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 get carried, they, they get carried away. That They offer you all this stuff, which in my humble opinion, you do not need. Some may differ. If you do, let us know. But, but I have found no need for any of the additional stuff that HP installs. I, I differ, you know, I um, be, it, only because 
if you have an HP printer or really any printer, it's a multifunction printer that has a scanner in it, then you may have to run their software on your machine. Um, you, no, okay. I know this for a fact. It's, it's, you know, I've got an HP printer that it must have their software running in order, in order to access the scanner. So, but it doesn't necessarily need the software in the, you know, running in the background all the time. You can launch the software on your Mac and then say, go ahead and scan, but you still need that HP software. So you don't want to uninstall it. The problem is uh, without uninstalling it, you sometimes are left with this crapware background process running all the time. So that's something you can go and edit with launch D uh, or, you know, or Lingon to go and, and kill that off so that it's not constantly, constantly running all the time. But, uh, but yeah. So, all right. Uh, let's move in. We're done with all the Scots. So let's move. Uh, let's wrap up, but let's go through some cool stuff found and some tips. I've been so excited about this, this next one. Uh, ever since Jim sent us this email, he said, based on a tweet from Tim Verporten, I downloaded installed Bartender, a nice menu bar app that helps clean up the icons on the menu bar. Mine is very cluttered on my MacBook Air, and this app really works for me. The icons I want to see all the time are there. The rest are either consolidated into Bartender icon or off the menu bar completely. It only works for non-Apple icons, as far as I can tell. So no impact on time machine, battery, etc., it's only in beta, but worth a look if you haven't tried it. And it's at MacBartender.com. It's free right now. Uh, I believe it's free right now. Uh, yeah, it's still in beta, so it's free right now. But man, this thing is awesome, especially if you've got a screen like, you know, a laptop screen or an air screen where it's really, really tight in the menu bar. Uh, th this does exactly what Jim described. And I think it's going to be 15 bucks when it's uh, when it's released. Let me look here. But uh well, uh, it's it's fifteen bucks in release, but you can buy it right now for seven fifty. So go ahead, check it out, play with it, and then uh, and then you know you're good to go. So yeah, bartender, it's good stuff for uh, for all of us laptop users. I wish Apple would do something like this. You know, it's it's actually Windows kind of has this to a degree where you can you know choose what you have in the menu in the in the trough and uh, you know whatever. Um. All right. Now, a good handy little tip. We promised you that we'd have some handy little tips in the show, and we've had them, and here's Gary with one more. Gary says, uh, in reference to Mac Geek Cab 395, Wesson had a problem with unchangeable login items and doc content. I encountered this problem on a client's 2008 iMac running Lion a couple of weeks ago. I tried about everything. Repaired system permissions, user permissions via the recovery partition, Checked and repaired with disk the disk with Disk Warrior, and I reset the SMC and the PRAM. None of those allowed the login items nor the dock content to change after a restart. Then I remembered that booting in safe mode resets many system caches and preference files. I booted in safe mode, then restarted in normal mode, and the problem was fixed. So I've now added booting in safe mode to my list of tasks that I ex execute in my Mac tune-ups. Thank you very much, Gary. That's excellent advice. And it's, it's easy to forget that safe mode does more than just boot with, with a limited set of extensions and, and none of your startup items. It does also do some, uh, some cleanup and, and troubleshooting uh, operations, uh, including, like you said, caches and preference files. So good stuff. Oh, you had now a, I can hear you. You had a problem. You had a problem that, that was solved by that, right, John? 
I think it was a, a, a Time Machine. I don't know if that did it, but it, it it was one of the things that I tried here. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you great. Good. Okay. No, we had a high. Uh, I looked at my diag window and it showed a high jitter. Oh, very interesting. It was like crazy. But the other thing I noticed, Dave, is that, you know, we'll, we'll link to this, of course, uh, but but Apple has a nice article, HT1564, what is safe boot and safe one? One of the things that it does, which I think is key, Dave, well, two things. So one is that it says a safe boot deletes the dynamic loader shared cache, which to me just sounds cool. That is cool. <laughs> but it sounds like something that could get corrupted and... Uh, and if it's not recreated, so SafeBoot does that. And I think the other thing they do is that they only run a select number of uh, kernel extensions. Yeah, only required ones. So I think that it, it's right. good in a troubleshooting sense in that if you've recently installed a new piece of software or hardware and it causes problems and then you boot in safe mode, then you can probably, you may be able to conclude that the kernel, a new kernel extension has caused you uh, some grief. It also does something with fonts. So yeah, I think it's a good general tool. Oh no, uh, uh, deletes uh, font caches as well because you may have problems like that. Anyways, we'll link to the article. You can look at it, but I've had it solve problems. So it, it's not something that most people know to do, but now you do because you're listening to us. That's right. All right. Uh, you want to tell them, tell them about the battery thing that John, listener John found? <clears throat> Wasn't that amazing? Okay, listener John, because we Johns have to stick together. That's right. All right, so John had an initial problem here where he, uh, if you bring up the battery icon in your menu bar, his initial problem was he saw a big old X in there. Now, based on the Google Foo that I implemented here, what that means is basically the computer cannot communicate with the battery. Now, that could be because there's something... Maybe wrong with the computer or maybe something wrong with the battery or maybe the battery is dead, totally dead to the world and you're not talking to it. But the X is certainly bad. And so I suggested, I think um, I suggested, you know, run something like battery health monitor and, and a few other programs and just just see if you can get back. Uh, if you can read anything from battery. And he said, no, I couldn't. But here's what he did do. Well, here's what he think he did, but I think here's what he did, he did do. So, so he got back to us and said, you know what? I, I reset something, and then all of a sudden the battery came back. Now, he said to us, he, he, well, he tried a number of things, and I think uh, we'll focus on what I believe he did that solved the problem. So then he said, well, the PRAM, uh, I reset the PRAM, which he certainly did. Now, we have an article that, that indicates that the PRAM doesn't have battery data. Yeah. Yeah. But I think to, what he to also be, to be did, clear, I, I contacted people deep in the know. PRAM has nothing ah. to do with the battery. Yeah. It's the, and I found that too. I found an, ar it's and I found system, an article. Yeah, yes. It's the system management controller that, that does. Right. Yeah. So there are two parts in the Mac that maintain various things about the system that sometimes get corrupted and you have to reset them. One is the PRAM. One is the SMC. I believe he did both. And yeah, ju just to, to keep, keep us honest here resetting the smc the smc definitely has settings or it's the system management controller the smc absolutely has to do with power management and i guess by an extension batteries so basically what happened here is so we thought the battery was dead and lost cause it was not by resetting the smc all of a sudden and he sent a nice screenshot of battery health monitor which is one of my favorite utilities to see what my battery's doing that battery is back and better than ever 
well, not, not quite. It, it's not at its maximum capacity, but, <laughs> but he can see it again. But, you know, I got to say, I've never heard of this, Dave, where, where a computer, something being corrupted, the SMC being corrupted would, would basically ignore a battery and say, I don't see it. And that, that, that's where he was, but not anymore. So uh, reset the it, SMC. Hmm? This was, this was not a remove. Oh, this was a removable battery. Yeah. I believe yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. No, it definitely and again, can happen. again, he saw an X in the battery icon and uh, yeah. And that normally means I, I don't see a battery or the battery is, is, is totally shot. Yep. No, especially in that case. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the logic for the battery is stored with the removable ones is stored on the battery itself. And that's why you need to condition the removable ones and, and, uh, and kind of get them in sync with themselves. But the SMC decides whether or not the Mac can even see the battery. And if it's corrupted, then I mean, it's not like there's a bit in there that you say, Oh yeah, turn off the max ability to see the battery. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it, it keeps a lot of that stuff in there. And if it gets corrupted, then it does not see the battery is, is really what it comes down to. So yeah, it's good so, stuff. That was a happy ending because it sounded to me that, you know, he was ready to toss the battery. Yeah. Or the computer. Right. But, right. Uh, all right. Last but not least, Paul writes, not sure if you've both been following the phone hacking scandal as perpetrated by News International, allegedly, but I've just discovered that you can change your voicemail password. I'm a longtime one password user and take all matters of online and offline security very seriously. But this one had completely slipped me by and was a new one on me. I'm never likely to be eavesdropped on by the press, but after now having changed the default password on my iPhone voicemail, I can be confident that the press will never be able to report that my family has run out of milk and laundry detergent. All right. Uh, so indeed you can change, you know, with visual voicemail, it's uh it's not something you use all the time. That password is sort of buried in there and it, it sort of stays there. But if you go on your iPhone and go into settings general and then go to, Oh, sorry, not general settings phone, and then go to change voicemail password. You can change it. If you don't know what it is, it's possible that it is four ones. Uh, that was a longstanding AT&T default. So depending on how you got your iPhone, if you upgraded from another AT&T phone and you left it as the previous voicemail password, then that's what it's going to be. But, uh, but if it's a default password, it might be four ones. Uh, if you don't know what your password is, we'll send you to a link um, at AT&T's knowledge base that talks about how to reset your voicemail password. And we've got another one at Verizon that will reset your Verizon password so that you can then go and change it in uh, on the phone. One other thing that's interesting, though, that not many people are aware of. AT&T's voicemail, and I believe Verizon's is similar to this, has a lot more features than you see with visual voicemail. Now, visual voicemail on the iPhone is cool because you've got this sort of uh, random access to voicemail and you don't have to listen to messages in order and all of that good stuff. And that's great. But AT&T's voicemail allows you to set vacation messages and things that are not obvious or certainly not available in the iPhone interface. And you can get to your voicemail. Uh I believe uh, certainly you can just dial your cell number and then uh, and then as you hear your voicemail, you hit star and type in your password and that will get you there. Uh, and it used to be that you could just hold down one on your AT&T phone. I can't test it on mine because I actually route my voicemail through Google Voice, uh, 
and so my voicemail doesn't even go to AT&T right now. So, uh, so I can't test that on mine, but I'm pretty sure you can hold down one, but if that doesn't work, just dial your phone number and you'll see there's a whole menu structure there. You get all the same voicemail that everybody else gets. Plus you get visual voicemail. You just have to access the other, the other part of it, the way everybody else does. And that's by dialing in. Yeah. Good stuff. We've got, we've got knowledge base articles on, on all of this stuff. So it's good. Well, I did see the uh, the the entry on my Verizon iPhone, so I think at some level they they support it. Though I got to admit, one since I've gotten the iPhone, I haven't dialed in manually. Right. I did with my older phone. I did dial in with a one eight hundred number. I believe it was. Yeah, they my do Verizon have those voicemail. too. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and I got to take issue with them because yeah, I mean most people heard about this where it was an allegedly a uh, uh, you know supposed. Uh, News source hacking into voicemail. No, they were using the default password. That's all it was ever changed. Yep. No, to me, that's not hacking. That's well, well, maybe it is hacking in a sense, but it's, but it's taking advantage of a poor implementation and that, that there shouldn't be a default password on anything, including your voicemail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Seriously. Yeah. It's crazy. I'm with you. All right. Well, it's time to see what the band's up to. And Are they sweating? Probably not yet. We're we're almost there. Yeah, we were sweating. We played Saturday night down at the beach. It was really it was hot. Yeah. yeah and I'm saying good. here we're 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 we haven't hit the eighties yet. We've hit the mostly the sixties still and the seventies on some days, but not the eighties. Wow. You know, it's, it's nuts. We've had we yeah. had a couple of days in the eighties. We had we had them this past weekend. Yeah, really? Yeah, that's been awesome. It's been it's been cool. All right, Uh, you know how to contact us, but we're going to remind you anyway. You, because you're a premium listener, have the distinct ability of emailing us at the special premium address, which is premium at macgeekgab.com. And just in case you didn't hear that, or there was a disruption in the space time continuum. I want to make sure you heard that in that it's premium at MacGeekGab.com. One last time, that is premium at MacGeekGab.com. You can also call us 206-666-GEEK, which my good friend is 433 plus five. <laughs> well, no, it's not 430. Well, not really, but it's 433. And then you wait a moment and then you hit the digit five <laughs> on your keypad, on your phone. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Hey, do you remember the old days? I, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but, uh, you know, in the old days, and I think this is probably still true with the phone system, if you have <sighs> a number to dial, uh, yes. if you hit the pound sign at the end, it, it would send that number through faster, right? If you dial the long distance number or something, you had to I've dial. I've heard of no such thing. Yeah, it used to work. May, well, you grew up with a weird phone system, man. You didn't even, you had like the switchboard <laughs> operator, so... Oh no no no! But at one point, so so in the the exchange that where I used to live, they, they called it teltone. They would convert touch tones to pulses. Right. Right. Yeah. It was crazy, man. That's crazy. Yeah. But that allowed you some flexibility, so that that's not so bad. Uh, yeah. You can you can Skype us, of course, to Mac Geek Gab, and we're always eager to hear from you any way that you can find us. I think you know how to find us on Facebook and Twitter, so. I, I think it's well, t- if you don't, Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Mac Geek Gab. 
And on Twitter, I'm going to tell you, Dave, I'm not going to tell you because you know, but if you're listening and, and especially if you're a new listener, welcome. Thank you so much. We, we, we like our, our, our small, uh, small group here, but growing by leaps and bounds. And so on Twitter, MacGab is, and of course, prefaced by Twitter.com and all these. MacGab is the podcast. Dave Hamilton is him. Pilipede is that guy who he's piloting, so he's not here. John Braun is me, and Mac Observer is the publication where you can get all of your Mac news and information. All right, that uh, that does it. We will be back uh, in a week and a half on whatever the first Monday in June is. We are taking Monday Memorial Day off, so uh, I wish everyone a good Memorial Day, a uh, respectful Memorial Day here in the U.S. if you're celebrating that. If not, uh, enjoy your Monday, and then we'll be back a week from Monday with Mac Geek Up 400. So Whoa! look for, uh, follow us on, on Twitter or, or Facebook and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna have some stuff going on for that. So so you definitely want to check out in advance. I, I'm I'm 99 certain we're gonna have a live stream of that happening as we do it. So you definitely want to uh, to pay attention. Just check out check out our Twitter feed. 99 99 uh, wow. technology confidence level is high. Yeah, well you know we gotta we have to leave that one percent for technology. But uh, <laughs> hey, you know we, we honor this stuff. If we don't, you know, if we disrespect the technology, we're we're doomed, man. So uh, so check it out. We'll probably put something on TMO about it, but we'll definitely put something on Facebook and on Twitter. So take this opportunity to come and like us on Facebook or follow Matt Keekab on Twitter, and, and you'll find it there. <laughs> All right, that uh, that does it. Maybe we, we th- there should be prizes or cake. How about cake? You know what? I'm leaving that in your court. I got enough to do on this end. So John's going to provide prizes and cake for everyone. Uh, I'll take care of the technology. So there you go. That's perfect. It may be virtual, but I I will provide prizes and cake. Prizes and cake. There you go. All right. So thanking Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this to AAC. Thank you, Michael. Uh, And, of course, Cashfly for all the bandwidth that it takes to get this from us to you. I hope you have an excellent week, folks. Thank you for everything. We'll see you next time. Have fun and, uh, and don't get caught.